If you would open your Bibles this morning to Romans, Romans chapter 8, and then you can also put your finger in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's where we'll spend most of our time this morning, but nonetheless, I do want to read Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, and then I'll also read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, and I think I'll just read them both together. So Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 16, God's inerrant and inspired and sufficient word reads, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed for us. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And Father, we just ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And Lord, as the, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we study this text, as we look at this text this morning, we pray that your spirit would illuminate this text so that we can understand it, that your spirit would open our hearts and minds. Uh, I have nothing to say. But that it would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say. And so we pray, Lord, uh, that you would have your way among us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Next Sunday, uh, I will not be here, and I'm not sure about Palm Sunday. The Sunday after that will be Easter and then we have three Sundays of heaven. And so I wasn't sure what to do. And so that's why I'm going to do what I'm going to do here this morning to transition into our series on heaven. And I might say that many of you have spoken to me or mentioned, commented to me that you're looking forward to my series on heaven, which has put extreme pressure on me uh, like I've not felt before. So what can I possibly say about heaven that you all are looking forward to? But I think today will be a great way to kick off that series. That'll be a couple weeks from now. I've simply titled this this morning, From Suffering to Glory. From Suffering to Glory. Um, we don't like to suffer. Uh, most of us, anyways, do not like to suffer. And suffering is something, as I thought about the word suffer... Uh, you know, I like to bike, and I don't bike as much as I, I used to, uh, and, I, and it shows, I know, but uh, nonetheless. Uh, but in the cycling world, often you will see T-shirts or people will have it on their cycling jerseys, simply one word. You often see it written. You know, spray painted on the road on nice long climbs on the road. You will see one word, and that word is suffer, suffer. I don't think of any other sport or any other participants in a sport that take so much pride and glory in suffering. For some reason, that's what it is. When we were at the pastor's conference here a couple weeks ago, Brad and I were there, and one of the pastors was there, and I got to ride with him a little bit um, and when we were doing our ride for missions, and it was through western Maryland and through some of those long hills and stuff like that, 
And he's like, you know, he said, next year, he said, I'm going to keep up with you on those long climbs. He said, I've been, I've been going to the gym, and I've been working out on my legs. What kind of strength training do you do in your legs? And I said, well, I don't do any. I just ride my bike. And uh, he said, you don't do any? He said, no. And he said, well, how do you, how do you just go up the hills? Well, that's a whole other side issue. Uh, the bike is my therapist, so that's something separate from that. Uh, but suffering, and when you think about cycling in a suffering world, it, it, it's all about uh, uh, lactic acid in your muscles. And so it builds up within your muscles, and it causes pain, and you can't get enough of the white blood cells to carry oxygen to your muscles, so you have this pain, and you need to suffer to deal with it. Your lungs burn, your legs are screaming, sweat is into your eyes, and you have to love that. So I said, if you can do that, you'll be good. But there's something about you hit to the bottom of the hill, the bottom of the climb, if you will, and something triggers in my mind, and I go. I go. Suffering. You know, when you get the Tour de France coming up here in July, usually it comes up in July, and I love that one. Um, the, the Tour of Italy also comes before that. There's a lot of climbing in that. And uh, sorry for getting off on cycling this morning. I should redirect, but... Uh, as you ride at the last day, the 21st day of the Tour de France, as they ride into Paris, the winning team is usually kind of taking it easy because the rest of the team kind of, the rest of the team kind of hold back. And as they ride into Paris, they often have champagne glasses, and they're toasting each other, the winning team, as they ride into Paris. From suffering to glory, from suffering on the hills of the Alps to riding into Paris, drinking champagne. Well, that should be the attitude of the Christian, should it not? That should be our attitude. From suffering to glory, are we willing to suffer? For some reason, when it comes to our Christian life, we gloss over the passages that talk about the Christian suffering. Christian suffering. In our text here of Romans 8, that We'll save it for two months from now or whenever we come back to it. But in here, we see that we are children of God. We are heirs of God. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Then there's a conditional clause here. If indeed we suffer with him, we suffer with Christ. Why? So that will tell us, here's the why, so that we may also be glorified with him. And verse 18 starts out with the reason, the transitional word for, which is the reason why verse 17 is written. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings, plural, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings on the hills and the mountains of the Alps do not compare to riding into Paris drinking champagne. I don't know that I can make that comparison or not, but I guess I just did. But we don't see it that way in the Christian world. And yet Paul, over and over, in all of our biblical writers, over and over, put these two together, suffering from suffering to glory. 
And since I find myself in this predicament, this quagmire of trying to transition into Easter, what better way of speaking of suffering? And then coming out of Easter, thinking of glorification of heaven, what better way to think about glory? And so to do that this morning, to set the stage for the season and also for where we're going after Easter, I want to look at 2 Timothy. And so if you're there in 2 Timothy, just flip there because we'll be spending the rest of our time in 2 Timothy because I think 2 Timothy does a great job explaining, if you will, or putting application to what Paul is talking about here in Romans. In Romans. It says, Paul starts out in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, again with Gar, with 4. With four, and this is be the reason. Anytime you see four, typically that is going to be the Greek word that, that, that is giving reason. And so he's saying here, four, this is the reason for what came before it. And so I want to remind you of verse five, because this is what Paul is now springboarding off of. In verse five, he says, but you, he just got done talking and giving Timothy the charge to preach the word, to exhort in season and out of season. Because there are going to be people that are going to come in and out and among you who are just going to tell you things to tickle your ears. They're just the Joel Osteens of the world that are coming into the church to tickle our ears and to tell us what we want to hear, the feel-good message. And Paul is saying, Timothy, don't fall for that nonsense. Verse 5, but you, Timothy, you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. Why? The four. Four. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Timothy, I'm checking out. I am headed to heaven. And the baton, the ball, the bike, any other analogy you want to put in, is in your court, Timothy. You must step up. This is exactly what we need in the Christian world. And maybe especially today, we need to step up and do the work of the ministry. Not fight about petty things. We need to step up and do the work of the ministry. Do the work of a world that desperately needs Jesus. Are we willing to keep the main thing the main thing? Are we willing to step up and do the work of the evangelists? To do the work of the ministry that God has called each and every one of us for, and also for Holly Grove Mennonite Church. Are we willing to step up and pick up the baton? Those who came before us, of those who went before us, and who set out and gave us what we have here today. It is now our turn, and it is now our time. And Paul is saying, Timothy, it is yours. It is your church. It is your moment. It is your time to take on the climb. To suffer if that's what it needs to be. The Dutch reformer Erasmus, he said this. He said, I'm a veteran. I have earned my discharge. And I must leave the fighting to younger men. Are there younger men and women who are willing to pick up the fight? To do the battle? To carry on the baton? to continue to do the work of the ministry, to continue to, to suffer for the sake of the gospel, we must step up. Who will step up to be sober-minded? Who will step up to endure hardship? Who will step up and do the work that we have, that you have been given to do, to fulfill your ministry? Every single person, 
Every single one of us has a ministry to do. Are we willing to step up? Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He says, I'm already being poured out. In other words, my time is running out. The sand has gone through the hourglass. And Timothy, I have done all that I can do. It is now up to you. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we'll get there sometime next year. Paul says, Paul says what does he say? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. As a living sacrifice. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul wrote to the church there in Philippi quite a few years before he wrote 2 Timothy. And he said, even if. He said, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Well, now Paul has indeed been and is being poured out. Being poured out is just pouring out of self, emptying of self. That's the other thing your cycling coach would tell you. At the end of the day, if you don't fall off your bike, you haven't emptied yourself. You haven't given your all. And that's what Paul is saying. This idea of retirement, no, 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 Paul wouldn't agree with that. You need to empty yourself for the gospel. In Numbers chapter 15. Example. Really what Paul is drawing upon. And I'm not sure if the Romans. Because they would have probably been mostly Gentiles. But I'm not sure if they would have understood this connection. Though I'm sure they would have to some degree. But in Numbers chapter 15. We've got this idea. Not this idea. It was the sacrificial system that was set up. And there was a couple phases of it. And for each phase, there was a drink offering, some wine that was poured out on the sacrifice as it was given. It could start out with a lamb. And this lamb, along with this lamb, this was maybe almost one of those first tier, if you will, of a sacrifice. And you would dump out maybe about a quarter of a gallon of wine with that. It could be stepped up, the sacrifice where a ram was used. A greater sacrifice was used. And along with that, you know, maybe about a, a third of a gallon of wine would be poured out. Poured out as a sacrifice, as a drink offering to Yahweh. And then a bull would be the greatest sacrifice. And with that, as a sacrifice was being offered and burnt up before Yahweh, a half gallon of wine will be poured out upon the altar. That's what Paul is saying. Over a course of Paul's ministry, more and more of Paul has been poured out. And he says, it is now done. He continues there in verse 6. And the time for my departure has come. The time for my departure has come. Time, we should think of uh, time, um, Christ, time as season. As season. So, so a se- it's not necessarily time as, as right now. The time is going by quickly, uh, though that would apply also. But it's more in the sense of a season. A season of Paul's life has, has been being played out and has now come. The leaves are changing or maybe they're falling off the trees by now. But hopefully they're starting to bud. But they're starting to come out. <laughs> Let's switch really quick. The leaves are starting. The season has come. The time of my departure has come. Departure is obviously uh, death. And not in the negative sense, as we often think of, of death. But in a way 
say that of departure of loosening a ship from the dock, untying the ship and waiting for the wind to catch its sail. Paul had just sailed to Rome a few years ago, not that long ago, that he must remember his journeys across the sea and being shipwrecked and everything else. And, and here he's saying and drawing the analogy that the ship, so to speak, has been untied from the dock. And it is being set free. Paul as a tent maker. Another way that the word is used often in Greek is in the sense of untying or pulling up the tent stakes. And Paul as a tent maker, again, has probably drawn these analogies from the work that he has done and has, been, has, has done over his lifetime. The time for his departure has come. He doesn't know exactly when that will be. Whenever the sails fill up with the wind or the breeze, or as he rolls up the tent, he may also be thinking of a time where no longer am I going to be rolling up my tent, pulling up my tent stakes, but I'm going to be putting it away permanently for that eternal home. These are things that must be going through Paul's mind as he's telling his protege, the next person who's going to fill the pulpit for him, if it will, this is the responsibility that he now has. In Philippians, Paul also had told that to depart and be with Christ. That's his desire. And in 2 Corinthians, he said, to go and be with the Lord. Paul as often has this idea in eternal, his eternal home, going to be with Christ in mind. That centers Paul. That stays his, that, that's what causes him to be able to focus in upon the work and the ministry that he has given. Well, verse 6, that was the appraisal of Paul's present faith. Let us move now to verse 7 and look at Paul's, or the summary of Paul's past faith. Paul had talked there about his, his present condition on, on where he is now, and now Paul is going to transition here to say, this is where I have been in my faith. This has been my faith journey, if you will. Paul starts out in verse 7, and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. I've never read this as anything that Paul is bragging. Uh, maybe you have, and there's people that certainly are not fans of Paul. They don't really, many people don't necessarily care for Paul, uh, I guess because he has too much hard language. I'm not really sure why, but they don't like Paul. And so many people will say that, well, Paul is just bragging about himself. And there's no way he should be talking about how great of a fight that he has fought. But I think our bias is showing when we read it in that way because Paul isn't necessarily saying that he has fought the good fight. He is saying the faith is worth the battle. He is saying that doing battle is worth it. It's not that Paul has fought well, but that the fight of Christian ministry is inherently good and is worth the battle. I think that was Muntz who wrote that, that it is worth the battle. So our sense isn't necessarily that we have done a great job and pat ourselves on the back for fighting well, but our faith is worth the suffering. No matter the outcome, Paul has fought with honor. Paul can come to the end of his life, and he can understand and he can realize that I have fought with honor. I have followed the rules. I've upheld the terms of the contract, if you will. I have fought well. I have fought with all that I have. There is no gas left in the tank. I am emptied myself on the side of that hill. I have emptied myself in ministry. William Hendrickson, he wrote this. 
He says, it has been a fight against Satan. Speaking of Paul's past. It has been a fight against Satan, against the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this darkness in the heavenlies, against Jewish and pagan vice and violence, against Judaism, against the Galatians, against fanaticism among the Thessalonians, against contention, fornication, litigation among the Corinthians, against Gnosticism among the Ephesians and Colossians, against fightings without and fears within. And last, the commentary writer I think captures this well, and last but not least, against the law of sin and death operating within his own heart. Within his own heart. Man, we battle, we fight, and they're good battles, and they're good fights. But sometimes I wonder if our external battles are more of a reflection upon our internal battle that is happening within us. And Paul here has faced them all. It has been a lifetime of fighting, if you will. It has been a lifetime of battle after battle after battle. Paul now has left it all hanging there, has left it all out, and he is now departing. Chrysostom comments on this verse on the good fight like this. He says, there is no worthier than this contest. The crown is without end. It has not a human empire. It has not men for spectator. The theater is crowded with angels. Crowded with angels. I have fought the good fight, Paul says. I have finished the course. I have finished the race. I have finished the task. I have finished my ministry. Starting is easy. Finishing is hard, right? I mean, all aspects of life. We have lots of little sayings like, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Why not in our Christian faith? I don't hear people talking that way in their Christian faith. As soon as their faith goes a little sideways, if you will, or goes south, whichever direction you want to head, right away it's like, God, let me down. God's disappointed me. God can't be real. I'm not all happy. Life isn't great. I don't have a million dollars in the bank. You know, whatever we, you know, Christianity would go so shallow for us. I have finished the course. Starting is easy. Finishing can be very, very hard. In Philippians, Paul wrote, he says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting what lies behind, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is nothing. There is nothing that can cause you to throw a towel quicker in your Christian life than being stuck or focused on your path, on your past. I am the master of dwelling upon my past. I am a master of letting Satan grab a hold of my leg and drive me backwards or drag me backwards. There is nothing that can undermine our faith quicker 
and our joyful attitude and our joyful heart quicker than dwelling upon our past. One thing that I like to tell myself all the time, again, I just reveal more of myself, I guess. But I like to tell myself that today is tomorrow's past. Today is tomorrow's past. I tell myself that all the time. Today is tomorrow's past. What am I telling myself? Hey, quit, quit focusing on the past. Because tomorrow is today, and I'll be focusing on today, so why don't I just not focus on the past, focus on today, so that tomorrow, when I do look at today, I can look at today and know that I've done my best, that I've fulfilled what this day and this day alone I've been given to do. Tomorrow, or today is tomorrow's past. Today is tomorrow's past. You don't want to live there in the past, and that's what Paul is saying here. If you want to finish the course, if you want to fight well, don't dwell in your past sins. Don't dwell in your past mistakes. Paul has now finished his race, his ministry. He, told, he tells us how to do that here. But also the author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, some chalk it up for Paul. I don't think it was Paul, but that's just weird. It does, just doesn't matter except for us nerdy people, but scrap that. I'm not sure who wrote Hebrews. Correct answer is God did, right? But the author of Hebrews tells us exactly how to finish well. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance. Let us lay aside all those things that trip us up, those things that distract us from doing good, those things that be it family, be it jobs, be it kids, be it sports, all those things can be very good things, and that's why they can drag us down because they're actually good things, but they can be used in a way that distracts us from the work and the ministry that we have been given to do. And the author of Hebrews says, lay aside those encumbrances as much as you can. You know, obviously we have to be responsible people, but as much as you can, don't get hung up. I was, um, I gave my blood, um, uh, when was it, Friday, I guess, at the school. And the person who was taking my blood, she was there talking, and all of a sudden she said something about, ah, I'm not going to be a Karen. And I just kind of let it go. All of a sudden I was like, oh. I was like, now why would you be a Karen, you know, because you hear that type of thing. And so it was kind of an interesting, interesting thing. But, it's, it, it, but, that, but she was right, correct? I mean, what she was telling herself. Look, I'm not going to let some of this silliness drag me down in the job that I had to do. The same thing can be in our faith. Don't be such a Karen, right? I mean, don't be, such, don't, don't be such a drama queen sometimes in our faith, in our walk. They can just drag us down. Lay those things aside. There's that. But the author of Hebrews says there's that, but then there's also encumbrances and sin. Those things that we wallow in, those things that trip us up, that, we, <clears throat> that we're succumbed to. Now, I don't know what those things are for you, but those sins that want to trip you up, they may be going through your mind right now. I just ask you to give them over to God once more. Don't let the sin trip you up. Don't allow Satan to say, well, you're not good. Don't let Satan tell you that, well, you're just no good. You keep messing up all the time or you're just a screw up. Yeah, I know I am. <laughs> Don't let that. Lay it aside. Let it go. We must stay focused is what Paul is telling Timothy here in these three verses. Stay focused. You know, when I was in construction, um, 
It's like I was born on a construction site, but when I was in construction, we used to often have to walk the walls, especially for setting trusses and things like that. And um, one part of my life, we built these huge um, apartment buildings, three, four-story apartment buildings. And you'd have to walk the wall three, four stories high, and that side is straight down. And, and often, newbies especially, they would be like hanging off this wall. It's like, how do you walk the wall? Run around. Yeah, you can do it. But what are you focusing on? Are you looking down? No. You can walk on a two-by-four quite easily if it's a foot off the ground. It's no different than if it's 40 feet off the ground. You just stay focused on the two-by-four. That's our Christian life. We must stay focused. Again, since I'm hung up on biking, when you're drafting, you don't look way at you. You focus on the tire in front of you, the bike in front of you. You just focus on that wheel. We must stay focused. We can become very focused in life. But we must also be very focused in our Christian life. Often in our Christian life, we seem to, to want to veer, or I do. Let me just first person singular. I often will become or lose my focus. Paul says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. And now he says, I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith. What's he saying? Is he saying I've done a good job? No. Paul is just saying that, listen, sports analogy, I've played by the rules. Business, I've kept the terms of the contract. Faith, I've never lost confidence, hope, or trust in, the, in, in whom or the one that I serve. I have kept the faith. Kept is guarded. He's guarded. Faith is word. He's guarded the word. He's guarded scripture. He's guarded what God has given him to do. Jude 3, content earnestly for the faith, once for all handed down to the saints. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul wrote there to Timothy also, obviously, in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. He said, Oh, Timothy, guard, there's our word, guard what has been entrusted to you. What has been entrusted to Timothy? To preach the word. What has been entrusted to Timothy? To give oversight to the church at Ephesus and other churches. To give oversight. Guard these things. Avoid worldly and empty chatter in the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. If we ever live in an age of knowledge, it is certainly now. All you have to do is Google it or there's other apps that will just write a whole sermon for you if you ask it to. I don't do that, by the way. Maybe I should. Maybe I'll take advantage of AI, but knowledge is so readily available. And he continues on in verse 21, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Avoid that pointless and endless arguments. Avoid those who want to say, well, my friend has a PhD. Well, I wish I had one of those. But I'll show you my friend that has a PhD who disagrees with your friend with a PhD, right? Sometimes we put so much emphasis. You know, growing up as a young lad, um, knowledge or higher education was frowned upon. You don't go to school, certainly not to be a pastor. You don't do these things, and yet we see it today. People go off to school, kids go off to school, and they lose their faith because they never had a solid faith to begin with. But yet knowledge can lead us astray. We must be careful. We must be careful. Knowledge is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. But it also takes knowledge to search and trust out the sources we read 
and those folks that we believe. Well, lastly, I want to come to verse 8. We see Paul's future exaltation of Paul's future faith in verse 8. Paul says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Paul talks about the crown of righteousness. James in Revelation, James and the author of Revelation, which is John, James and John both talk about a crown of life. Peter talked about a crown of glory. There is certainly a crown our gospel, our biblical writers are constantly referring to. The crown here that is being thought of, sometimes we often think of it as like a a prize, a trophy. I'm not sure. That's certainly one school of thought. I'm not 100% sure that's totally accurate. But one thing that we must understand that this crown that Paul is speaking about, especially in the metaphor of a race and things like that, it was more of a a laurel wreath or, or a foliage or some type of vegetation of a wreath that was made. They were often also given uh, temporarily as there was some special event and the guest of honor would get this special vegetation or this flowered wreath um, uh, that was given to a person of honor. And how can we not think of Jesus and his special wreath that he received, his crown of thorns that he received? Paul says, I'm not going to get a crown of thorns but a crown of righteousness. What's a crown of righteousness? Which is a perfect righteousness, a perfection. It's a time where our life and our faith is now perfected because God has called us home. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes, chapter 5, 6, verse 6, Jesus says there that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Did you catch it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's an image of suffering. Hunger, thirst. It's an image of suffering that we have there, but ultimately, the crown of righteousness is an absence of sin. It's an absence of sin where our body, once again, be restored in its perfected state that it was supposed to be from the beginning. Paul continues here as he wraps this up with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me. The righteous judge, it's a fair umpire. We've all had our share of fair, unfair refs in our opinion. Paul says, no, our, our, our Lord, our Christ, is a fair and a right, respectful judge, and he will reward He will reward rightly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, time is really, I I need to go here. You're not going to hear from me for a while, so suffer. I'm not sure that was appropriate. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 12. Now, if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. Gold, silver, precious metal, those are great things. Of course, we understand that. We don't see a a, a scrap pile of gold laying out behind the house somewhere, do we? But we will see some of these other things. These things will be burned up. The fire will reveal each man's work. But but, but listen, 
If any man's work which he has built on remains, he receives a reward for that. 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will indeed suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as going through fire. There are rewards that Paul is speaking of here. And we're going to get into that more as we get into our series on, on heaven, as we think about rewards in heaven. And, and, and I guess we can say rewards in hell. I mean, the opposite is also true. There's degrees in heaven. There's degrees in hell. And, and here we see one of these examples and that Paul is referring to, that the righteous judge, he will reward faithfully. He will reward accordingly. And Jesus said in Matthew 25, well done. We know the parable, right? Well done, you faithful servant. You were faithful in few things. I will put you in charge of many things. We know those stories well. Paul doesn't stop there. He continues when he says this. He says, but Timothy, and to us today, it's not only available to me, but it's also available to all who have loved his appearing. Loved his appearing. It's just a longing for his appearing. Do we look forward to the return of Christ? Do we long for the time that we can loosen our rope from the dock, that we can pull up our tent stakes and depart and go with the Lord? Do we look forward to that? I don't hear too many people excited about that. Not young people anyways. Do we look for Paul says, listen, that must be our focus. Do you desire? I leave you with that challenge here this morning. Do you long for his appearing? Do you look forward to the return of Christ? Do we look forward to the time of going home. You know, as a hospital chaplain, um, very anyways, it just, you could just, as you visited with people that were, their time for departure had come. Some of them spoke so fondly and would look so forward to departing and being with the Lord. Wow, that was a great reward of a job as a chaplain. Others, not so much. It was certainly, there was no future or hope there for them. And also a time as a chaplain I could share with them. But us as Christian people back here, do you long for the return of the Lord? Listen, Paul knew. This is as Paul is writing this. Paul knows exactly what Nero's verdict will be. He knows and so does Timothy. And yet Paul isn't talking, Timothy, let me tell you where I went wrong. If you would take this approach, you might keep your head attached to its shoulders. He didn't say that. Paul knew exactly the verdict of Nero's, Paul also knew God's verdict and what God's verdict will be. We must be indifferent to the world's verdict. We must be indifferent. I want to close in Romans 8, 18. I just want to read it to you. For, for I consider, just, just listen to this verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do we claim that verse for ourselves? The Christian will suffer. Our dependence must be on Scripture. Death is just loosening from this world and drifting into the next. We must stay the course. We must stay the course. We must never give up. The antidote 
to spiritual lactic acid buildup is the scriptures. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. Lord, I thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that as we focus on suffering, which we do not want to focus on, and yet each and every one of us, we face it in areas. Often we just think of the martyrs. And we do think of those who are physically suffering, being tortured for their faith, maybe even as we speak. Father, we pray that you would give them strength, that you would give them courage to stand strong. Even as our fellow Anabaptist brothers and sisters would were burned at the stake and drowned into the waters so many times. Father, give us the courage to suffer in our own way, to suffer in areas that aren't at all compared to that. And yet each and every one of us makes tough decisions uh, that may be counter to our workplace, counter to maybe even family, counter maybe to, 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 to the world in general and, and causes us a bit of uncomfort. Whatever it may be, Lord, whatever those sufferings may be, Lord, I just pray you would give us the courage and the strength And may we be thankful for the sufferings, knowing that from suffering to glory is the reason why we sing and worship you this morning. I pray in Jesus' name.